0: Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. Happy New Year. Tired of hearing that yet? I already am. It's like been 11 hours. And I was asleep for like eight of them. So, but, <laughs> you know, I hope that you all had a, an, an awesome and incredible Christmas. And I'm assuming that you had a safe new year because you're here. So congratulations. Uh, you started off. You haven't messed it up yet. Good job. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's really good. It's really, really good to spend the first day of the year together. And I think that we, together as a church, you and I, that we're going to have a great year, regardless of what gets thrown our way. But we're praying to, like, not be on the God's strongest warriors list for, like, one year, right? (laughs) Just, like, take it easy on us. (laughs) But, you know, the calendar rolling over to January 1st doesn't, like, physically change our reality at all, right? But it is the marking of a new season, a new era, so to speak, and the, the general culture likes to mark this as a time where we try to do something different. right? We commit to new practices, we flood gyms with our newly found fervor for fitness. <laughs> we eat healthy, and we actually maybe use a budget when we plan our finances until like March, until like the first birthday shows up, right? I think that's all really good stuff because it's important to look at what's working in our lives and make meaningful changes and rearrangements if there's a gap between who we are and who we want to be. And so I think that as a church, we should embrace this as a time for reflection on our own practices. Where can we as individuals and as a community improve? Where is there a gap between who we are and who we want to be. And then what are we going to do in order to close that gap? Notice I didn't say what are we willing to do because willpower, I have found, is not good enough. We have to actually do things and we do things by actually bringing a change to our lives Through established habits habits protect us from our failing human will habits are what actually produce transformational behaviors in our lives and so for the next five weeks the whole month of january we're going to be in a new series called brand new and it's called that appropriately because not only is it a new series but it's a new year But more importantly, it's going to revolve around developing five spiritual disciplines throughout the year of our Lord, 2023, that will ignite your passion for Jesus, stretch your love for your neighbors, and transform your spiritual journey so that it and you can be made brand new. And so today we're going to talk about one of the most fundamental but least practiced spiritual disciplines. Scripture meditation, a.k.a. reading the at the actual Bible, right? <laughs> reading the Bible is hard. You don't have to tell me that it's hard. I know. I paid a lot of money to learn how to read this thing and teach you how to read it, and I still get lost. <laughs> I know that it is. It's not an easy book to understand. Sure, parts of it seem super straightforward, like we're dealing with, with just some, some narrative portions that are thrilling. But what we have to always realize is we are dealing with an ancient book that is beyond the scope of how modern American minds have been trained to digest literature and information. First of all, it's a collection of many different styles of writing. It's got narrative, it's got boring, boring law code, got poetry that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, rhetorical letters, which are like one side of a phone conversation, and then prophetic writings, which (laughs) who knows how to read that, (laughs) and even though we have some sense of how to read these types of literature because it's not like the art of them died long time ago, We, we have modern iterations of these, what we have to realize is that there is a time and a culture gap between us and our text that people that are much smarter than you and I are still trying to understand. And I say all of this because we simply can't just sit down, read the Bible from cover to cover, and know everything, know all of its information. The Bible is not just some history book, or it's not just some straightforward step-by-step user manual for how to do human life. It certainly can teach us history and it can teach us how to be humans, how to live a happy life. But to treat the Bible as something simplistic that we can read once and done is to actually miss out on what the Bible is. And usually what happens when we give our Bible this kind of attitude is that we cause harm to be done. Because did you know that if you took everything in your Bible literally at face value, we would own slaves and we'd stone our children probably not something that we're trying to do around here. I don't know, you know? I'm not trying to be a part of that. So what we need to understand is that the Bible is complex. But even more important than that, the Bible is Jewish meditation literature. what I mean by that is that your Bible, well, 64 of the 66 books in it were written by Jewish people. And the two that weren't, Luke and Acts, were written by a Gentile man, a non-Jew, who is so deeply steeped in Jewish culture and the Hebrew Bible, your Old Testament, that even those two books qualify under the genre of Jewish literature. And when I say meditation literature, what I mean is that it's not something that is to be read once. And it's certainly not something that is to be read infrequently. The Bible is written in a way that it requires us to meditate on it, which simply means to digest and re-digest and discuss and discover and reread in an attempt to come to a deeper understanding of what it is teaching us about God and how we are called to live in our modern world, based on words that were written to an ancient world. See, the Bible came to be over a period of thousands of years, and in its earliest forms, it was mostly transmitted through oral tradition, meaning that it was memorized and recited. The Psalms, in particular, paint a picture for us about how our ancient Israelite ancestors meditated and viewed their scripture. So I want to read to you words of Psalm 119. It's going to be verses 9-9 through nineteen and just listen to these words and this this attitude that is purported by the psalmist towards God's word and scripture. It says, How can young people keep their way pure? Well, by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Do not let me stray from your commandments. I treasure your word in my heart, so that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the ordinances of your mouth. I delight in the way that your decrees, as, in your decrees as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servants so that I may live and observe your Word. Open my eyes so that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I live as an alien in the land. Do not hide your commandments from me. I just want to take a minute and focus in on the verbs that are used to relate humans to God's word. Guard. Seek treasure teach declare delight meditate fix not forget live observe behold what all of these show me and show us is that the attitude of the original benefactors right the original receivers of scripture towards the scriptures was one of loving action. They viewed it as something that was meant to take the main stage in their lives, to be of highest priority, breathed in, breathed out, lived, cherished, and sought after. Now, I know that this is idealistic, and I assume that the people of Israel had periods where they truly lived this out. But as we know from scripture itself, there were periods of time where they totally neglected this practice, where they totally forgot that this thing even existed. And so if you're like, man, I do not like the Bible as much as the writer of Psalm 119, you're in good company. Don't worry about it. But there is an astonishing trend within Christianity, and even within the most fundamentalist denominations of Christianity. And that trend is neglecting Bible reading. I mean, sure, we go to church and the preacher reads the Bible to us. And we go on Instagram and on Facebook and we find inspirational Bible verses that help us uh, find encouragement. We post them. To our page and share the word of God with the people, right? But that doesn't count. <laughs> people generally read their Bible less and less as time goes on, as we move more and more into this modern world that we live in. And, you know, maybe that's because it's weird and it's hard to understand in places, but that's not a good enough reason not to read it. However, it's, uh, it's a new year, and I'm trying to be more positive this year, so instead of focusing on the reasons why you shouldn't not read your Bible, I'm going to focus on maybe one particular reason why you should. In the spring of 1945, an Austrian farm girl named Ida Weisenbacher, was awoken by Nazi soldiers knocking on her door. And they ordered her to hitch up her horse and wagon. And then they began loading onto it crates from their trucks. And then they had her drag the crates to a nearby lake that was not accessible by truck. And so wagon load after wagon load after wagon load went to and then into the lake. And Ida knew better than to ask what was hidden within those crates. You see, by the time this occurred, World War II was coming to an end. Hitler was dead and allied forces from the U.S. and Britain were barreling into Germany from the west while hordes of Russians were bearing down on Berlin from the east. Nazi leadership, what was left of it, knew that they would soon be forced to surrender. And so they began began to hide all of the treasure that they had amassed through the course of the war. They hid it in mountain caves and possibly even at the bottom of lakes. And this fact became quite well known after the war, and so folks, treasure hunters, historians, began looking for this wealth that Hitler had stolen from Holocaust victims and from the rest of the world as he marched across Europe. In 1999, a recovery crew went to the lake near Ida's home. And after days of searching and diving, they found what appeared to be the remnants of the crates. And upon further inspection, they found that they were filled with paper, which began to disintegrate as soon as they were touched. But some of these papers were brought carefully to the surface, where their true nature and the Nazis' biggest secret was revealed. The crates were filled with counterfeit British currency. Hundreds of millions of British pounds, which the Nazis had planned to airdrop over the United Kingdom in order to flood the British system with fake currency and cripple its economy. You see a mass influx of fake currency into an economic system is disastrous. It causes instant inflation. It devalues the real currency. But more important than that, it creates panic. and it turns and in turn, lowers both consumer and seller confidence. Because what if what I'm being paid is actually worthless? What if it's fake? How could anyone trust any bill being given? The British pound would have been rendered useless, untrustable, completely counterfeit, even if it was a true, honest-to-God British bank note. I spent some time early in my vocational career working at a mall retail store called American Eagle, uh, I was I worked there as a cashier. I was about 20 years old. And uh, next to each register was a book that had pictures of commonly used counterfeit U.S. bills. And what's important to know is that for a counterfeit bill to be useful, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be good enough to slip by some 20-year-old that doesn't really care, right? <laughs> but this book was meant to help us me as, as a young fella, figure out and be able to identify counterfeit bills. It highlighted some of the flaws that were noticeable to the naked eye. But let's be honest, I don't think I opened that book one time in the midst of people trying to buy jeans, right? Uh, it just didn't happen. And the, the fact is, before modern technology and counting machines, The best practice for identifying counterfeit currency was not to study a book of common fakes anyway. The best practice was to study the real stuff. Because if you know what the real bill looks like, it's much easier to spot what's bogus. And this is the point uh, of telling you all of this because we live in a world where there's a lot of people writing and preaching in ways that are easily accessible. The internet has connected us to information in in an incredible way, but when we, when you and I relinquish ourselves of the responsibility of studying, of reading, and of meditating on the scriptures, then we are turning over that responsibility to other people, which can be okay, but it It doesn't allow us to critically engage in recognizing what is from God and what is not. It allows us to be manipulated, to accept a counterfeit interpretation of Scripture that can really cause harm to us and to the world around us. And a counterfeit interpretation of scripture, a a false gospel being spread, harmful practices being done in the name of God and of the Bible make everything that we try to do as Christians and as the church suspect to the greater world. Our witness is compromised by counterfeit teaching. And it's on us, it's our responsibility as Christians, to study the real thing so that we can spot the fakes, so that we can reject them, rebuke them, and hopefully raise some consumer confidence in the gospel and message of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that like, you shouldn't listen to others because, actually, quite the opposite. Scripture is meant to be discussed and discovered in communities. But what we need is to be aware of and comfortable with the contents of our Bibles for ourselves, so that we can ask questions when the person on the internet or the person in the pulpit says something that just doesn't really seem right. You know, today, in the life of the church, we celebrate the Epiphany, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ to three pagan astronomers who dropped everything to come and find the Christ child. And I think that their story has a rather deep connection to this discussion. Because they were likely meditating on prophetic Israelite literature from the book of Micah, which talked of a new king coming. The same book which King Herod had his scribes verify when the wise men came to see him. These men were led to meet the Savior through their curiosity and through their knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures. And I believe that this is very much the point of the Bible. It's a collection of writings that invite us to seek and come face to face with Jesus of Nazareth, this baby who was born in a manger and who grew to become the Savior of the world. This Jesus was and is the central hope of the entire biblical story, which was realized in the manger in Bethlehem and then finally on the cross in Golgotha. And so the invitation to read the Bible is an invitation to seek out the truth of this man Jesus and how giving up everything to follow him is the ultimate goal of of this strange collection of Jewish meditation literature that we call the Holy Bible. It is an invitation that doesn't expire. It's an invitation that does not only ask us to come once or twice, but continually for the entirety of your life as you continue on your journey to become more and more like Jesus. And so this year... I'm inviting you to read scripture. And not just to have the willingness to read scripture, but for you to actually create a habit of it. So as a church, we're going to follow a scripture reading plan that's posted on the church website that will come to you each week in the news blast. And I'll also post it at the beginning of each week on Facebook. And it's a commitment of like 15 to 20 minutes a day reading about three chapters and often watching a short explainer video that will help you not only read, but understand your Bible and what's happening where you are each day. And I can't stress to you enough how much this is going to help you, especially when you come to a grinding halt in some of the very difficult parts of the Bible. But I also want to invite you to ask questions Ask me questions. Ask one another questions. Do whatever you've got to do to keep moving forward through it when it gets weird, which is like pretty often because it's a weird book. (laughs) But even though it's weird, as believers, we believe that this weird and strange book is breathed out. And inspired by God, that it is God's Word and that it contains everything necessary for salvation, that it leads us to Jesus and that it does introduce us to God's wisdom for humans and how we are called to conduct ourselves in this world. And so, reading it and meditating on it and allowing it to guide us as we travel along this journey of discipleship is the greatest gift that we can give to ourselves in this year. 2020.